This is Precepts Audio Message P.A. 501. Nathan C. Johnson, Bible Teacher. For all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in truth. Psalm 72. And this is now the last, very last psalm in the second or the Exodus book of Psalms, which we said Exodus is the book of the names, particularly the, the name of the Lord and the names of his people. It's also particularly the book of the nation of Israel, God's people. And we have gone through many of the psalms, and now we are up to the very last one, Psalm 72. Now the King James Version has the title as a psalm for Solomon. The New King James makes this a song of Solomon. Well, the Companion Bible notes on page 920, which is discussing the book of the Song of Solomon, as this to say, it says that the Hebrew word lishalomo is not the genitive case, which the genitive case would mean of Solomon or Solomon's, but it's the preposition el or lamed, which means two or four is in the psalm titles in the expression for the chief musician, not of the chief musician. So therefore, it's not necessarily limited to authorship, as may be seen from the title of Psalm 72, where we have the same word, le shalomo, rendered for Solomon. And of course, some of our modern versions have changed that and made it of Solomon, just like Song of Solomon. Fortunately, they fixed the discrepancy the wrong direction. It may well mean concerning or relating to Solomon. And that is what I believe it means. And especially as we look at the end of it, it says that the prayers of David the son of Jesse are ended in verse 20, which indicates that this psalm is actually a psalm of David. as it calls this, a prayer of David. So this psalm is not Solomon writing. This psalm is David writing this psalm for his son Solomon, who is to reign in the future as king. Bollinger locates this psalm as taking place after Solomon's second coronation. You might be saying, wait a minute, Solomon's second coronation? Well, yes, we have, we're probably most familiar with Solomon's coronation in 1 Kings, Remember when his brother Adonijah was trying to take the throne and Nathan came and informed David and Bathsheba about it. And so they had Solomon coronated. But his second coronation is actually recorded in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Where in verse 22 we read, And did eat, speaking of Israel, and did eat and drink before the Lord on that day with great gladness, and they made Solomon the son of David king the second time, and anointed him unto the Lord to be the chief governor, and Zadok to be priest. 
Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king instead of David his father, and prospered, and all Israel obeyed him. And all the princes, the mighty men, and all the sons likewise of King David submitted themselves unto Solomon the king. So Solomon's second coronation took place then, and, and Bullinger says that after that second coronation comes the writing of this psalm. Now we consider that Solomon's name, which in Hebrew is Shalomo, and we get our name Solomon from the Greek. And we should realize, if we don't realize it, that the traditional Bible of the church is that you use the Latin Vulgate in the New Testament rather than the original Greek, and you use the Greek Septuagint in the Old Testament rather than the original Hebrew. So a lot of our names, as they come down to us, are, are familiar names in the Old Testament are wrong because we're getting them from the Greek rather than from the Hebrew, and in the New Testament are wrong because we're getting them from the Latin rather than from the Greek. So a lot of our names are somewhat messed up. And that's certainly the case with Solomon, who that was not his name at all, it was Shalomo which you can't really say in Greek, which is why they changed it apparently to Solomon. Now, Shalomo means peace. And you should all recognize it's basically the same root as Shalom, which we know is a Hebrew expression for wishing each other peace or health. When you meet someone, you say Shalom. Well, Solomon's name is Shalomo, meaning peace or health or wholeness. So if this psalm is for Shalomo, it's, it's for the man Solomon, but it also relates to the messianic peace for which Israel and the world are eagerly awaiting. Now, Dr. C.I. Schofield in his reference Bible notes in this psalm says, The psalm as a whole forms a complete vision of Messiah's kingdom so far as the Old Testament revelation extended. All David's prayers will find their fruition in the kingdom. So this psalm would have been good for Solomon. It would have been good for Solomon's son, but it was not really realized in them. For it would be wrong to believe that this was in any way fulfilled in the past or at the present time. J.B. Rotherham in his book Studies in the Psalms makes this a people's prayer for a perfect king. He says of this psalm, It is messianic, but it is unfulfilled. It does not correspond with the spiritual and invisible reign of the Messiah in heaven. It is a mockery of the downtrodden of the earth to treat this psalm as if it were now in course of fulfillment. It is valid, but it is in reserve. It has never yet been fulfilled, but will be fulfilled in the letter and in the spirit. Why its accomplishment has been so long delayed must be sought elsewhere. And of course, I don't know how well Rotherham knows it, but we know where to seek for the reason why the fulfillment of this psalm has been delayed. And that is the advent and the dispensation of grace in which we live. That at Acts 28, 28, God suspended his kingdom purposes and introduced this parenthetical period of the dispensation of grace. So we would find the reason for the long delay of the fulfillment of this psalm in the book of Ephesians, talking about God's present purpose. But going on with what Rotherham says, he says, Meantime, a comprehensive study of all the psalms which have a direct bearing on the kingdom of God will assist the student to get upon the high road of correct and successful interpretation. 
When men are ready to do ungrudgingly honor to the God of Israel, then will the time be not far distant when the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. And what he says there is true, but I don't think men will ever come to a place where they're ready to do ungrudging honor to the God of Israel until God ends his long display of grace and begins to act to bring in his glorious government to this downtrodden earth at last. So let's examine now what this psalm says to Solomon, not by Solomon, but to Solomon. And I believe ultimately it's speaking about the one greater than Solomon. Matthew 12 and verse 42, where the Lord says, The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, a greater than Solomon is here. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ is the greater one than Solomon who was yet to come. And so I think this psalm ultimately finds its fulfillment in him. So verse 1. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. So he speaks of the king. And of course we realize the king immediately there was David. This was indeed after Solomon's coronation. It was also Solomon sitting on the throne along with David. But ultimately I think this finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ the Messiah who will be ruling as a projection and extension of God and will be ruling from his throne in the heavens. As we see in Psalm 103 and verse 19 where he says, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens and his kingdom ruleth over all. So, Jesus Christ will be ruling, and all there is of God, in his universality and in his infinitude, will come to Jesus Christ, so that when he judges, when he sets things in order on earth, he will judge nothing of himself. As the Lord said in John chapter 5 and verse 30, he said, I can of mine own self do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not mine own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So Jesus Christ will rule uh, for God, and he will rule completely as God, as God would rule, and of course he is God. Judgments here is the Hebrew word mishpat, which is the setting and order of things according to what is right and just. And we can see what Mishpat means in Genesis chapter 40 and verse 13. Where Joseph, speaking to the chief butler in prison, said to him, This is the interpretation of it. The three branches are three days, yet within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head, and restore thee unto thy place, and thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand, after the former manner, that's the same word judgment, after the former judgment when thou wast his butler. So the former judgment was the former arrangement, the former way things were set up. So Jesus Christ will receive his arrangement, his divine order of things, from God. It will all be God's order of things. And give thy righteousness unto the king's son. 
And this is the Hebrew word ben. And it doesn't mean his offspring, but his representative. Of course, the son of a man, as we've talked about before, was his representative. And Jesus Christ will represent God as the Son of God ruling in the heavens, with a capital S, Son of God. David will rule as the small s, Son of God, ruling as prince over Israel on earth. So God's judgments will be given to the king and to the king's son, the king's representative. Verse 2, He shall judge thy people with righteousness, and thy poor with judgment. So judge here is the Hebrew word deen. It has to do with executing judgment, pleading a cause, or vindicating. So he shall execute judgment on thy people with righteousness. Now rulers today often judge unequally or unrighteously. But this is not the way it will be in God's government. Amos chapter 5 and verse 24 says, But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness is a mighty stream. And that's the way it's going to be in God's kingdom. Is that judgment, true judgment, true equity we might say, uh, will run down like waters, and righteousness will run like a mighty stream. So judgment and righteousness will be combined in God's kingdom. Now the world today lacks true judgment. And of course the world desperately needs judgment. And the world will see true judgment when God's kingdom comes. Now he shall judge thy people with righteousness. Now this is particularly focused on thy people of Israel. Now Bollinger may well be right that this was in the last year of David's life after he had already set Solomon on the throne in his place. And his hope is that Solomon would judge the Lord's people with righteousness. And we realize that Solomon did for the most part And thy poor with judgment. The poor would be the downtrodden or those without power. Now these in God's kingdom will receive justice. Now today often those who are without power do not receive justice. You need to have power, you need to have some form of recourse in order to receive justice. And so those who don't have any power, any recourse, will often have judgment twisted against them. But not so in the kingdom. The, the poor, the downtrodden, the powerless will be judged according to what is right and just. And this is, judgment here is mishpat again. Setting an order of things. Again, according to what is right and just. Then verse 3, The mountain shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. So the mountains are going to bring peace to the people. This is the Hebrew word har for a mountain. But it's often used as a symbol of a kingdom or a government. 
Some think that this speaks of messengers coming over the mountains with news of peace. But I don't think that's the idea. I think the mountains themselves stand for governments. Now today, governments or kingdoms often bring war to the people. Through their decisions, they bring war, not peace. And the people will often have little or nothing to say about whether or not they go to war. The government decides it and brings war to them. Now how much better it will be in the kingdom of God when the mountains, that is the governments, bring peace to the people and not war. Now the word peace here is the Hebrew word shalom. Again, as we discussed from which Solomon's name Shalomo is derived. And besides peace, it also has to do with just general wholeness or wellness. Health. So the mountain shall bring peace and goodness and wellness to the people. And the little hills by righteousness. So we might say these would the little hills we could think of as the local governments. Which sometimes can be just as bad for the people as the larger national governments. But they'll bring peace to them, wholeness to them, and so forth by righteousness. So that will be how the mountains in that day will do this very different thing. Bring the people peace. Is that they'll do this by righteousness. Now even our best governments today are far from always being righteous. Sometimes governments can act in a righteous way, but often times they do not. And even like I say, the best governments don't act exclusively righteous. But in God's kingdom, they'll bring shalom, peace to the world, through righteousness. Verse 4, He shall judge the poor of the people, he shall save the children of the needy, and shall break in pieces the oppressor. So he shall judge the poor of the people. Now this time, judge there is the Hebrew shephat, which means to govern, and it's the word used in the book of Judges. You know, the book of Judges, the judges that we talked about are the rulers, the governors over Israel. They were like a, an informal king that didn't pass on the rule to his children. So to judge means to determine what's right and set things right, to set things in order. They're the rulers, the governors. So he, this king, shall judge the poor of the people. And the poor of the people are those who have no champion and are oppressed. And I believe that these, this is speaking of events that have to do with the introduction of God's government on earth. Of course, once God's government is fully there and fully functioning, there won't be any oppressed. There won't be any who need a champion. God's kingdom will have taken care of all such. But as I've told you before, we need to separate between the glorious period when God's government is being set up and all the wrongs on earth are being set right from the equally glorious period when God's kingdom has already been set up and it's fully there and fully functional. And the period when we see these glorious things coming into existence is during the setup period. And once God's kingdom is fully set up, fully there and functioning, well then, 
things will be different because you'll no longer need to be bringing justice to the oppressed because there won't be any more oppressed. That would have been done during the setting up period. So you always need to recognize that, that there is the setting up period of the kingdom where certain things are true, and then the period where the kingdom's already set up, where some of the same things are true, of course, but some things are no longer true. You're no longer having to change things on earth because they've already been changed. So he shall judge, govern the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden of the people. He shall save the children of the needy. This is not the Hebrew word for children. This is the sons of the needy. And I've spoken of the sons as being the representatives. So this will be whoever represents the class of the needy in that future day when the kingdom is starting. And we can be quite sure that there will be some there at that time. As Christ said in Matthew 26 and verse 11, For ye have the poor always with you. And this is true. So certainly when God's kingdom starts, wherever it's, whenever it starts, there will be those who will be needy at the time. And so God will save all the representatives of the needy. And shall break in pieces the oppressor, or crush the oppressor. Well, that seems drastic, perhaps, but what else could he do? Because if he left the oppressors untouched, then they would only try to oppress again. It's the only thing he can do to permanently save the oppressed is to crush their oppressors. Well, this ends the first stanza, which is praying for the king who will do righteous judgment and true justice. And starting the second stanza with verse 5, They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. So they shall fear, they shall respect, they shall reverence, they shall look in awe at thee. As long as the sun and moon endure. So we get the idea, I think, there. We know that the world could not exist without the sun and the moon. So as long as the world continues... Men shall respect and revere this king. And so this, of course, again, it takes us far beyond Solomon. So they shall fear thee as long as the sun and the moon endure. The word there in Hebrew is actually the word face. As long as the sun and the moon face. Well, face is often put for being present. So as long as the sun and the moon are present, they'll fear this king. And throughout all generations. Hebrew there is generations of generations. Meaning on and on. Throughout generations and generations of people. All generations will fear and respect and reverence this king. Well, of course, we realize that human kings perhaps are feared and respected as long as they rule. But eventually their rule is ended by death. And then the next generations who come don't necessarily fear and respect that king because he isn't around anymore. But this king endures. He continues as long as the sun and the moon so that all generations learn to respect him. There doesn't come a generation where he's gone and they don't have to respect him anymore. Verse 6, He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. 
So this is interesting to think of a king coming down like rain. Now we know that a king reigns, R-E-I-G-N. We don't usually think of him coming down like rain, R-I-A-N, on the mown grass. But this is similar and reminds me of David's last words. And indeed, if this was written during David's last year of life, like Bollinger suggested, this would be around the same period as David's last words. Of course, would come before David's last words. I take these as his official words, not necessarily the last thing he said in his deathbed. But we might say this is his last psalm, his last inspired writing. In 2 Samuel 23, in verse 3, it says, The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spake to me, He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after rain. So this king's reign will be like rain, R-I-I-N, upon the mown grass, bringing up grass as showers that water the earth or that soak the land. So it causes abundance, it causes growth, it causes healthy crops. And of course righteousness does the same thing for humanity, for the world of mankind. It causes health for the world. It causes prosperity and growth for the world. And that's what we'll see God's kingdom will cause, is that this world will be healthy like the grass after a nourishing shower. Verse 7, In his days shall the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. So in his days shall the righteous flourish, now we realize human governments don't always favor the righteous. There are some governments that favor wickedness. There are some governments that favor unrighteousness or certain kinds of unrighteousness. But in the days of this king, his future king, it was the righteous and the righteous only that will flourish, that will grow and will prosper. And then the abundance of peace as long as the moon endureth. Abundance of peace here is, we might say, wave upon wave of peace. We could say that there is a constant flow of peace. And peace, again, is shalom, the word from which Solomon, or shalomo, gets his name. So wave upon wave of peace, as long as the moon endureth. Now we know from Paul's statement in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, speaking of Jesus Christ, he says of him, Who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. So Jesus Christ alone has immortality. And so since he has immortality and Having died once, he dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. But we can be sure that his days will have no end. As long as the moon endures, so long will be his days and his righteous reign. And the abundance 
wave upon wave of his peace, his prosperity and wholeness and wellness and peace on the earth. Verse 8, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth. So he shall have dominion, authority, rule, reign, also from sea to sea. Now in Israel we think of as sea to sea being typically as going from the Mediterranean Sea, which formed the western border of Israel, over to the eastern border of Israel, which was the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River coming from the Sea of Galilee and going down to the Dead Sea. And that was generally considered the eastern border of Israel, although of course we realize that Reuben, Gad, and half the tribe of Manasseh asked for their territory east of that on the eastern side of the Jordan. But Bolger thinks that he would extend this from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Persian Gulf. And he thinks that's what it means from sea to sea. Then and from the river onto the ends of the earth. Now in Israel we think of the river as typically meaning the Jordan, like I said, the eastern border. But Bollinger again extends this and thinks it goes all the way to the Euphrates, which would take in more of the promised territory of Israel over and above the territory that they that they held most of the time, although Solomon extended their borders out farther than at any other time, and that way becoming like the the type to the anti-type of Jesus Christ as well. So from the river onto the ends of the earth. Now, as we've talked about before, the same word Eretz could mean land or earth. So this could be onto the ends of the land, onto the most remote parts of the land. But at the same time, we already learned that his rule will affect all the governments of the world. Verse 3, the mountains shall bring peace to the people. So I think we would be correct to spread this out to the entire globe. Because this is the dominion not just of Solomon over the extended boundaries of Israel, but this is the rule of the Son of God. Now it is David, who I believe in the premillennial kingdom, will have dominion over Israel and will be king there, or we might say prince ruling under Christ the king. But the dominion of the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords ruling from heaven, his dominion will be over all even the remote, remote parts of the earth. So this verse ends the second stanza, which has to do with the extent of the King Messiah's reign, both in time, that is, it's never ending, and in distance, that is, over all the earth. So verse 9, They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. So they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. Now often when men want to escape the notice of the current government, they will flee to remote, uninhabited places where the government has little influence. And then they will hope to escape it. But when God's government comes, none will escape his rule this way all even in the remote, uninhabited places. It doesn't matter how far out in the wilderness your cabin is or whatever. All even here must bow before him because his rule, his invisible rule, will extend everywhere. 
And so even those who might try to be forgotten out in the wilderness will not be forgotten. They must bow before him as well. And his enemies, so they must bow before him. Now, now that's panim, before his face. Meaning his presence. Again, the Hebrews put the face for the presence. Someone that's in your face is in your presence. We use in your face for something else. <laughs> but Hebrews would use in your face for in your presence. So he will be present even in the wilderness. His presence will be everywhere on earth. So even those out in the remote uninhabited places have to bow in his presence. And his enemies shall lick the dust. Or lick the soil, lick the ground we might say. And that is a sign of complete submission and prostration. No enemy is able to stand up and shake his fist and defy his government. All will be brought to complete submission and complete humility before him. Complete subjection. Verse 10, The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. So the kings of Tarshish. Tarshish means yellow jasper. And in the Bible is a city very remote from Israel. Jonah, when he tried to flee from the presence of the Lord, and the Lord told him to go to Nineveh, that great city, he fled to Tarshish instead, which he would take to be in the exact opposite direction. Now the common identification today is that Tarshish is in Spain. And Spain indeed is the very furthest coast of the Mediterranean Sea on the west from Israel, which is of course on the very eastern side of the Mediterranean Sea. So many think that they were, this was the furthest extent of the world as they knew it. Now if you follow out all the occurrences of Tarshish, you would see that Solomon's ships went to Tarshish along with the ships of Huram, his ally in Phoenicia and Tyre. And it says that they returned from Tarshish with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Now since neither apes nor peacocks are known to live in Spain, this makes the identification of Tarshish with Spain questionable. Unless you assume that Spain traded with other places further out and so they got these just from passing through Spain. But we do know that apes and peacocks live in Africa and in Asia. Those are the places where these two are found. So it's possible that Tarshish is elsewhere than Spain, either down in Africa or in Asia. Well, Asia seems so much somewhat unlikely because, like I said, I think that Jonah was fleeing the exact opposite direction from Nineveh, and if he fled toward Asia, of course, he would have been fleeing actually toward Nineveh. But Tarshish could possibly be in Africa, where they do have apes and peacocks. But no one knows for sure where it was, and most people today think it's Spain, so I don't know about that, but that's what's thought. Now it says, the kings of Tarshish and of the isles, or of the island nations, shall bring presents. Or this could be tribute. We can compare it to Psalm 68 and verse 29. Because of thy temple at Jerusalem shall kings bring presents unto thee. So again, talking about in God's kingdom, that kings will bring 
presence or tribute to the Lord because of his temple. Then it says, The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Sheba means seven or oath. Generally, Sheba today is associated with Arabia, and is thought to be somewhere in Arabia. Although others have suggested Africa, which is the only place on earth that we know of where female rulers were more common than, than anywhere else in ancient times, which would make Africa seem certainly a possible place for Sheba. And others have even suggested India as the location of Sheba. So, once again, nobody knows for sure where these places were. They were remote from Israel. Then there is Seba. Seba means drink, or you drink. Seba was a son of Cush, the ancestor of the black people. Cush meaning black. So this points to Seba possibly being in Africa. And so Seba is thought to be a province of Ethiopia, and Ethiopia and Seba are listed together in Isaiah 43 and verse 3. It's interesting that Seba is listed with Sheba, and again, that could maybe lend some credence to the idea that Sheba might have been in Africa rather than in Arabia. But these kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. So these remote nations too come with gifts because of the great king Messiah. And they offer their gifts to him. We could compare this with Isaiah 60 and verse 10, which says, And the sons of strangers shall build up thy walls, speaking to Jerusalem, and their king shall minister unto thee. For in my wrath I smote thee, but in my favor have I had mercy on thee. So kings will bring gifts to Jerusalem and ultimately will bring gifts to the king Messiah. Verse 11, Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. So all kings will fall down before him. Now did all kings fall down before Solomon? Well, we know that in Solomon's days all the kings from all the nations around Israel were subservient to Israel. And we know that at least the Queen of Sheba brought gifts to King Solomon. We read about that in when, that when she came, she came bearing great gifts. But certainly all rulers of the earth didn't fall down before him. That would be an exaggeration. But the King Messiah, all kings will fall down before him and all nations will serve him. Of course, nations are a political body or an entity of organized people. And it's never happened in the past that all nations have served any king of Israel. And so I think the amillennialists can do nothing here but admit to their lack of faith. So how will it come about that all kings will serve this king and all nations will serve? Well, this will come about by the power and skill of God. Only God can bring in God's kingdom. And he will bring in his kingdom in the future. So this ends the third stanza, which has to do with the complete subjugation of all to the Messiah King. And all will acknowledge him as master. Verse 12, For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. 
So he will deliver the needy or the helpless when he cries. Now he does not promise to do this today. Many are needy today and cry out and they aren't delivered from their neediness. They aren't delivered from oppression. And so this does not happen, certainly not universally today, but this will happen in the kingdom of God. We could compare this to Psalm 145 and verse 16. Where it says, Thou openest thine hand and satisfiest the desire of every living thing. And when God's kingdom comes, he will open his hand and the desire of all living things, not just all human beings, but of all animals will be, desired, will be satisfied as well. So there will be no starvation on earth. There will be no want and poverty on earth in God's kingdom. So he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. So again, the helpless, those with no one to help to stand up. Often the Bible speaks of the orphan, the fatherless. Of course, to have, to have a mother but not a father, you'd still be pretty helpless because everyone needed, there had to be a patriarch or there was no household. And the widow, of course, again, without a patriarch, without a household, Women were helpless. So these would be those who had no help or no one to stand up for them. And he will deliver them when they cry, it says. Verse 13, he shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. And again, the sparing of the poor and needy is not being done today. Rulers today often have little time for such people since they don't see any advantage in helping them. What advantage would you get from helping the helpless and the needy? I mean, they can't pay you back. They can't do anything for you. But in God's kingdom, all such will be spared. All such will be helped. He shall save the souls of the needy. Souls there is the Hebrew nephesh. And I believe it's put there for the entire person. He will save the, the persons of the needy. But soul can also be related to the emotions or to the desires and therefore also related to the things that satisfy the desires. So he will save their persons, but he will also fulfill their desires, the food they need, the things they need for a comfortable life. He will take care of them. Then verse 14, He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. So he's going to redeem the souls of these poor and needy. And redeem there is the Hebrew ga'al, which is the word for the kinsman redeemer. The great illustration of the ga'al is the book of Ruth, where Boaz is the ga'al. And, of course, our great ga'al, our kinsman redeemer, is the Lord Jesus Christ. So this future king will be the ga'al, he will act as the kingdom of Redeemer for the souls of the needy and poor. So what ruler today acts as if he is related to the poor and needy? Just so favors and identifies them, himself with them that he's like their kinsman. Bullinger says that Gaal redemption is to redeem from charge by payment. 
Whereas he says the Hebrew word padah, re redemption, is to redeem from bondage by power. So there's two different words for redemption. He says this one is to redeem from, from charge, from debt, by payment. So he shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence. Soul again means their persons or their comforts. Deceit there is oppression or fraud. So he will redeem them from oppression or fraud and from violence. And precious shall their blood be in his sight. Or esteem considered of value. So he will esteem their lives, consider them of value. Anyone who would bring about their deaths will come into conflict with God, in other words. And oftentimes under our governments, if someone kills a, a poor and helpless person, the government seems to pay little attention. But this ruler will consider the blood of all such precious. Psalm 116 and verse 15 says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And so the Lord cares about all his set-apart people. In this future time, he'll care about all the poor and helpless. We can compare this to Acts chapter 7 and verse 56. At the stoning of Stephen, And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. So as Stephen was standing there about to be killed, Christ appeared to him. And he appeared for his comfort and he appeared for his support. So the Lord proved that the blood of this saint of his was precious in his sight. And he appeared to him as he was about to be martyred. Now, on the other hand, those who killed Stephen need to fear what the Lord said in Luke chapter 13 and verse 28. Where he said, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out. And so these who, those who reject God and those who kill those who are precious to him need fear that they will be thrust out and have no part in his kingdom. Now we go all the way back to the beginning, speaking of their blood being precious in his sight. It reminds me of Abel. In Genesis 4, verse 10, after Cain killed Abel, and the Lord said to him, What hast thou done? The voice of that brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. So the Lord hears the cry of the blood of the innocent. And so in his eyes, the blood of all the helpless will be precious in his kingdom. And unlike in our day, though he sees that he will not stand, he stands by, he often stands by, in the kingdom he will not stand by when anything threatens the helpless or when anything threatens his saints, anything threatens his people. Verse 15. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. And he shall live. And of course this speaks of through resurrection. 
we would compare this to Romans 6 and verse 9. It says, Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. So he shall live in resurrection and live continually. And because of his life, those who belong to him shall also live in resurrection, as we know. And to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. And again, much of the gold of Sheba was brought to Solomon by its queen, as we know in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 2. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices, and very much gold, and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. So the queen of Sheba brought Solomon very much gold. Yet the greater son of David shall have even more brought to him, and his glory will never fade as Solomon's glory did. So to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. So Solomon again is the type, and Christ is the antitype. Prayer also shall be made for him continually. But Bullinger makes this, prayer also will be made to him continually. And this Messiah King, as we know, will be God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's not just that prayer is made for him, prayer is made to him continually. And no one in his right mind, of course, would have prayed to Solomon. But prayer will be made to the Lord Jesus Christ. And daily shall he be praised. Praised here is the Hebrew Barak, which is often translated blessed. And we realize this is the kind of blessed which means spoken well of. Now already in our day there are those who praise Jesus Christ every day. But even more so in the kingdom when all on earth will praise the name of Jesus Christ. So he will be praised every day. He already is, but even more so then. Verse 16, There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. So there shall be a handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. What in the world does that mean? Well, this probably refers to the nation of Israel, which will be on the top of the mountains. And handful, it appears, would mean an abundance. We could compare this to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 13. Where it says of Israel, And the Lord, if they serve the Lord, and the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. If that thou hearken unto the commandments of the Lord thy God, which I command thee this day to observe and to do them. So Israel has promised that they would be the head and not the tail, and above and not beneath, that is, regarding the other nations, if they would serve the Lord. And that's the way it's going to be in Israel and the kingdom, is that they will be on the top of the mountains. They will be the head and not the tail. They will be above and not below. Corn there. Corn was an old English word that meant grain. And we've taken the word corn and specialized it to mean the American grain, the maize. 
It just meant there will be a handful of green. Of course, they had no concept of maize. There will be a handful of green in the earth upon the top of the mountains. That is Israel. Top there is the rosh, the head. Now, Rotherham sees that more, this literally as grain terraces up the sides of the mountains. And Psalm 145 and verse 16 certainly speaks of the kingdom as having abundance of food. When thou openest thine hand and satisfyest the, the desire of every living thing. So as the fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon. This is probably referring to the plentiful trees of the forest. Lebanon was a famous forest. So here it would be the forests of grain will shake like the trees of Lebanon. Then it says, And they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. They of the city shall flourish. What does that mean? Well, of course, if the majority of our population is living in cities, city dwellers tend to look at themselves as superior and the country folk as inferior. But this was hardly the case in the agricultural society of Israel. When you think of the city dweller, you should think of a pale and rather sickly type. So the pale and sickly city dweller will be hale and hearty like the country folk. So that's what it means. They of the city shall flourish like the grass of the earth. You'd expect they of the city to be pale and sickly, but instead they're hale and hearty. So the Lord's health care in his kingdom will be healthiness and strength for all, no matter where they dwell, even in the unhealthy city. Then verse 17, His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. So his name shall endure forever. And remember, this is the Exodus book of Psalms. And Exodus' actual name in the Hebrew is, these are the names. And it's Va'ala Shemoth. Shemoth being the names. So you should really call Exodus Shemoth, not Exodus. It's the book of the names. And so it's appropriate that the last psalm in the book of, in the Exodus book, or in the Shemoth book of Psalms, ends with a reference to the Lord's name. So his name, the name of this king, Messiah, shall endure forever. And that's for the Olam, for the whole outflow of the kingdom. And the kingdom is often called in the Old Testament, the Olam. Then his name shall be continued as long as the sun. And the Hebrew there, continued, is repeated. His name continuing, it shall continue as long as the sun. In other words, it shall grow greater and greater, his name. As people know more and more about him, his reputation will continue to grow and grow. It shall never sink. It shall never be obscured in death, as the name of every ruler before him. It shall continue as long as the sun. And again, this is Panim, the face of the sun, as long as the sun is present. And all men shall be blessed in him. This is Hebrew Barak. Praised or spoken well of, just like in verse 15. So all men will be praised in him. Men praised in Messiah. 
Certainly, and this reminds me of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4, where it says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, shall shine forth, then shall ye also shine forth with him in glory or in glorification. So all Christ's people will be spoken well of in him. And those of us who are in Christ can be sure that we will be spoken well of in Christ in that day. So all in him will be spoken well of, and all nations shall call him blessed. Now this is the other Hebrew word for blessed, a share, meaning how happy. So all nations shall call him greatly happy. And indeed, the Lord will have much to be happy about. The Lord must certainly must have much to sorrow about on earth in our day, but he will have much to rejoice in and be happy about in his kingdom. Now this is really the end of this psalm. And what we have now is a, a great a closing doxology to this second book of Psalms, starting in verse 18. So we end the topic of the future king, Messiah, and just come to a doxology of the second book. So verse 18 said, Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. Blessed here is Barak again, spoken well of or extolled. Again, beginning this benediction. So extolled be Jehovah Elohim, the Lord God, the Lord the Creator and Judge. Jehovah Elohim, the Elohim of Israel, the creator and judge of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. But we know that our God does nothing small or petty. Everything he does is great. His smallest act is noteworthy. His smallest act is significant. He only does wondrous things. Verse 19, And blessed be his glorious name forever and ever, and let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Blessed is again the Hebrew Barak. Praised, extolled, be his glorious name forever, for the olam, perpetually or for the outflow. And this can mean perpetually or this could mean for the kingdom, which is the great outflow of God in the future. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Now, of course, this is yet to be fulfilled. The whole earth is not filled with his glory today. But if we consider Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 5, it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Yes, when God's kingdom comes, the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the earth will see it together, and then the earth will be filled with his glory. When that time comes, every person on earth will know the esteem in which God holds the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the earth being filled with his glory will take place at the blazing forth of the Lord Jesus Christ that Paul talks about in Titus chapter 2 and verse 13. Where he says, looking for that blessed hope, even the glorious appearing of the great God 
even our Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's the blessed hope that we all look forward to. And the result of that will be the whole earth will be filled with his glory. And he says, Amen and Amen. Amen means truly or let it be so. That's a word that is carried over more or less into just about every language on earth, this word Amen, for let it be so. And then, of course, after this benediction, ending the second book of Psalms, we have one last epilogue saying, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Now this verse seemed an enigma for many years to students. Since this verse not only doesn't end the book of Psalms, of course we're sort of right in the middle, but it doesn't even end David's portion of the Psalms. Nor does it conclude David's prayers, for more prayers of his will be recorded later. Yet once the truth of the five books of Psalms was uncovered and recovered, the meaning of this statement became clear. Prayers of David end here because this is the end of the second book of Psalms. Yet at the same time, I think Bollinger is right to point out a deeper truth here. As he says in his notes in the Companion Bible, he says, Our ended means are accomplished. He says, When this psalm is realized, all prophecy concerning Israel will be fulfilled. According to Daniel 9.24, to seal up the prophecy to set the seal on it as having been fulfilled. And same thing in 2 Samuel 23.1, where you compare the title, the son of Jesse. Again, 2 Samuel 23.1 is the last words of David, which we already I already compared this psalm to. It's taking place in the same period. These be the last words of David. David, the son of Jesse, said, And so he says here, all David, when this psalm is fulfilled, all David's prayers will be accomplished. Not just that the second book of Psalms is ended or David's prayers are ended, but when this takes place, they'll be accomplished. And amen, let them be accomplished. Let the kingdom come. That closes out the second book of Psalms, and we will continue and consider the third book of Psalms. We'll wait to do that in our next study.